Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. The Kinks were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1990, but they remain something of an enigma. Not easily stereotyped or characterized, the Kinks are nonetheless analyzed in the context of time and place in a book called The Kinks, Songs of the Semi-Detached by Dr. Mark Doyle, a professor of history. We really got him as a guest after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. Ella Morin's lengthy volunteer efforts have helped land her the Harold Love Senior Outstanding Community Service Award. The award is named for the late representative who established the first awards in 1991. Love would help a constituent in need even if it meant giving from his own pocket. In May of 2021, Morin plans to graduate from MTSU and pursue a joint medical degree and master's in public health. The rising senior honor college student who majors in biology and Spanish with a minor in general science has a gift for medical volunteerism and shadowing. And in the midst of a great year, the MTSU equestrian team has had its spring season derailed by the coronavirus pandemic, leaving coaches and returning riders optimistic about potential prospects for 2020-2021 if events resume as scheduled. Various teams and individuals' scheduled trips to competitions were canceled by event organizers as the country embraced public health guidelines. The equestrian team, which has a rich history of success, is an extension of the horse science program in the School of Agriculture. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Mark, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, socioeconomic class seems to have a lot to do with your analysis of the kinks. The Davies family started out working class and were moved into a middle class neighborhood where they were sort of fish out of water. Tell us how that figured into your assessment of, of the band's music. The brothers at the core of the band, Ray and Dave Davies, um, came from this family that's centered in working class East London. They moved out of working class East London because it was being bombed quite heavily during World War II um, into a middle-class area, Muswell Hill, Fortis Green uh, in North London, but continued to live in uh, quite a small house with a large family. Um, and as I put it in the book, as in a sort of time capsule, um, uh, an outpost of working class East London, um, maintaining uh, just the sort of habits of um, socializing and group singing around the piano and um, uh, large family get-togethers that, um, that you frequently saw in the East End, um, but were less common among middle class families. And so in the music, um, I think that class consciousness is very present. You see it in all sorts of songs from the very beginning, songs of kind of um, angular, angry guitar music in through the later songs, which are mostly what I write about in the later 60s, um, songs talking about uh, rich people in their homes or poor people in their homes. Um, and uh, there's a very kind of acute awareness of where characters uh, fit in the class hierarchy that you can kind of hear in the songs. Um, so yeah, I think that's, to me, that's the, the key thing that I'm trying to get across in the book is to appreciate this band as a working class band, 
operating in a world that is utterly transformed by the war, but also just utterly transformed by new um, experiences and a new sort of level of affluence uh, and wealth for working class people after uh, after the war. So, um, yeah, I hope that I hope that uh, is one of the main things people get from the book. Ray takes some pot shots at people who are hung up on economic class in some of those early songs you talked about, like well-respected man and dedicated follower of fashion. Those are both early kink songs. Has he maintained that motif throughout his songwriting career? I think so. Um, you know, I write about the songs up through about 1971, and then, um, you know, they maintained uh, a career through the, into the 1990s. Um, and he continues to write uh, and produce uh, songs these days. Ray Davies, the main songwriter for the band, um, is ambivalent about uh, most things, including his own class status. He is both proudly working class and sort of embarrassed about being working class and kind of jealous of, um, or looking longingly at other sorts of lives and lifestyles. So these days, you know, he lives in... Um, in a fairly wealthy part of North London, not terribly far from where he grew up, but uh, a much uh, posher uh, area, but still I think identifies uh, very strongly as working class, regardless of how much money he has and how much success he has had. Uh, so yeah, that, that comes through in, um, in songs that he wrote in the 70s and in the 80s and the 90s, and in um, memoirs, he's written a couple of memoirs, um, uh, basically, I guess from the 90s, um, the most recent one, I believe, was 2010 or 2012. Um, and you get this sense that uh, he very much sees his uh, position in society as one of kind of opposing the dominant um, establishment in Britain uh, as standing up for the little guy and um, kind of questioning the conventional wisdom about uh, how the world works. And I think that that sort of defiance outsider uh, persona is very much rooted in his, his working class background. As unique as Ray Davies is as an artist, he's also something of a traditionalist in that family and place mean a lot to him. You talked about him growing up in part as a part of a large family at one place. And now he, he lives in a richer part of town, but he doesn't live very far away from where he grew up. Talk about how that factors into his mentality and how he impressed that upon the kinks and the kinks music. Yeah, he um, lived throughout the time that I'm writing about. So from, you know, his early life until about 1973, lived within uh, either in his childhood home or within a two minute walk of his childhood home. Um, once he became successful in 1965 and could afford to buy a place, um, he went and bought a semi-detached house, a nice semi-detached house, but a, you know, a fairly modest home by rock star standards, a two-minute walk away from the uh, much smaller terraced house that he grew up in. And I think he sort of resisted the lure of, and to a certain extent was repulsed by, um, the, the rock star lifestyle that his brother, Dave, indulged in with um, quite gleeful, self-destructive abandon. Ray, he was both um, firmly rooted in his family and he wrote lots of songs inspired by his family, including almost an entire album's worth, 1971's Muswell Hillbillies, inspired by uh, his family and people he grew up with. Um, but also, like I said, slightly uneasy about his class background, slightly embarrassed, kind of attracted to the middle-class lifestyle for a while, for about, I think, it was 15 months he moved 
moved into a big fancy suburban home uh, in far north London at the urging of a couple of his sisters because, you know, like this is what rock stars are supposed to do. But he hated it and he moved back to his, uh, uh, his small, smaller semi-detached house close to where he'd grown up. Homes, houses appear with quite astonishing frequency in his songs. The connection between where you live and what that says about you, uh, what that says about not just your wealth, but kind of your outlook on life. I think it's something that, that he, he identifies that as uh, very important, both to him, but also just in British society in general, whether you live in an inner city terraced house or a suburban semi-detached house or a far suburban mansion, like these all, um, he has songs about all these things and more, uh, and and it uh, it's a way of creating character and building uh, empathy or uh, derision, depending on how these We'll take a break here. We'll return in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. Women in Science and Engineering, or WISE, helps college women prepare for and become involved in science-related careers. WISE nurtures women's interest in these fascinating and critical fields and provides mentoring and networking opportunities. The group's main goal is to assure women of their importance in all scientific and technical fields and to promote equal opportunity and treatment of women in science. I'm Dr. Judith Iriarte-Gross, WISE Advisor. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. The Tennessee Employment Relations Research Association, or TERA, gives labor relations specialists and academics a chance to share their views and their data. Terra wants academics and other interested in human resources and industrial relations to work together at meetings and conferences to strengthen the workplace. Many MTSU faculty belong to Terra, which has members in 20 states and 7 nations. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Our guest is Dr. Mark Doyle. He's a history professor and the author of The Kinks, Songs of the Semi-Detached. Ray Davies' post-Blitz upbringing also does not exclude a multi-generational aspect that some fans of other kinds of rock might consider quaint or even wimpy. I'm thinking specifically about Come Dancing, which was a hit. It's the only rock video I've ever seen that centers on ballroom dancing. Talk about about how Ray was no slave to age or generations when it came to the culture. He had six older sisters, considerably older than himself, and then Dave, who was a, a little younger than himself. And those older sisters introduced him to music, introduced him to uh, life in a lot of ways. And they made a real impression on him. So Come Dancing, uh, 1982, I believe is when that was released, was uh, kind of his his homage to that world. Um, the sisters going out with boyfriends in the 40s. And he, I think he has a strong um, affection for, and to a certain extent romanticizes that pre-war era um, and is attracted to it in a lot of ways. But, you know, he, as early as I believe it's 1965. He writes the song, Where Have All the Good Times Gone? Uh, talking about how things used to be great, but now they're terrible. When he's, uh, he's only, I believe, 21 or 22 when he writes that song. <laughs> so hardly an, an old man. In the 1967, he writes Autumn Al- Almanac. It's a song inspired by a gardener in his neighborhood who is an old man. And at a certain point in the song, he complains about having a aromatic back, uh, having back pains and rated himself have, have back pains. But the way he sings it, you know, is in the guise of an old man. There are several other songs that he writes around this time uh, as an old man. 
Yeah, it's fascinating. You know, a number of songs he wrote deliberately um, to be sung by people of his dad's generation, his dad's friends in the pub. Sunny Afternoon, I think he described in 1966, um, described as having been written with the idea that it could be sung in the pub. And I think what's at work there at the bottom of all that are these multi-generational sing-alongs that they would have as, as kids. They'd gather around the radiogram or the gramophone. They would play records by Hank Williams or Perry Como or um, any number of other uh, often American uh, singers. And the mom would sing and the dad would sing and the sisters would sing and everybody had their theme tune. And it was... I think his version of community and uh, socialization and uh, what it meant to um, to be part of a larger, of a group beyond yourself. I think that is probably more common that intergenerational socializing, hanging out, drinking in the pubs together was more common in England at that time than in America. The generation gap, the, the generational wars that were supposedly taking place in the 60s, I think were a little bit more muted in the UK than in the US, partly because of um, this kind of tight-knit pre-war working-class world that the Davies came out of. What impact did being banned from the United States for a number of years have on the Kinks and their music? It had a huge impact. They were banned for four years for essentially bad behavior and failure to comply with union regulations um, during a really disastrous tour of the U.S. in 65. One important impact it had is that they never, during the late 60s, became huge stars in the United States. Uh, they became quite huge later in the 1970s and the 80s. But in the 60s, um, if you couldn't tour, uh, it was very hard to get any attention at all. Whereas they were poised to become, you know, one of the top three or four British Invasion UK bands alongside the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. They, uh, just as they were, they kind of had that prize within their grasp. They, uh, they were shot down and, and the Who <laughs> swept into their wake uh, and became megastars in the US. But in terms of songwriting, what it did was, um, and Ray has said this repeatedly um, in interviews over the years, it meant that he did not have to worry about writing songs for an American market and selling lots of records in America. I think he would very much like to have sold more records in America. But um, when he uh, when that wasn't an option anymore, he, did, he kind of threw caution to the wind and began writing much more quirky, more um, symphonic, more uh, introspective, and uh, to me, much more artful uh, songs starting from 65 that, uh, that celebrated Englishness, that talked about afternoon teas and little shops and draft beer. You know, he, he felt like he could just sort of retreat into his Englishness. What I found out in the book, though, is that throughout this period, he remains fascinated by America. He's still writing about American popular culture. He is still influenced by American music. You know, his version of Englishness is a version that is heavily um, colored by uh, American pop culture. Um, so even while he's sort of uh, retreating, he is still looking across the Atlantic quite longingly. Even though he uh, is influenced by American culture, he's not pandering to anybody or anybody's culture, uh, that which is fascinating to me because of all the pressures that 
record companies, the media, and even fans place on rock bands to go one way or another with their music, depending upon what the trends are, so that they can make more money. How did the kinks remain authentically themselves all these years and not submit to all that pressure? Partly by accident, partly by shooting themselves in the foot. You know, the, the American band was as much an act of self-sabotage as anything. Um, there were numerous occasions where um, just due to bad timing or poor promotion from their record company um, or another band sort of sliding in to um, do something that they were just about to do or uh, famously in 1969, the, uh, the television uh, program that they had planned, Arthur, um, the television company, um, just decided to, uh, to to not go through with the project after they'd done most of the work. So a lot of it's just bad luck. Like, I don't think it was entirely intentional. It is, uh, it's often spun this way in interviews, Ray and Dave and, and the others will sort of say, well, you know, we were deliberately defying the mainstream and doing our own thing. Um, but partly, I think, you know, they would have liked more success. There were several times in the late 60s when the band nearly fell apart. And in fact, the um, founding bassist left in, in the late 60s. Um, so, um, you know, I think that said, there is, um, again, this freedom of not having to appeal to the uh, American charts and sort of feeling like they can do whatever they want. But, you know, there's an advantage to flying below the radar. If people aren't paying much attention to what you're doing, um, you can uh, experiment, you can take risks because you're not risking very much. You're not risking a huge uh, following or reputation if you don't have one of those. Um, which, you know, they did still have a following and a reputation. They still did have hits. Um, but for several years there, between, I guess, about 1966 and 70, um, there... Uh, kind of just free to try new things. And it's also happening at a time when other bands are trying new things and the Beatles are, you know, experimenting and um, American West Coast musicians are experimenting with different sounds. Um, so I think, I think it's, uh, it's not entirely the case that they're just kind of going their own way out of sheer bloody mindedness to a certain extent, they don't have a choice. Um, but I think for Ray anyway, uh, and insofar as he's kind of setting the course of the band, Ray's standard uh, mode of engaging with the world is to be a contrarian and to do his own thing regardless of what people are telling him to do. Uh, we'll take another break here. We'll be back in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. Specialized training in forensic science prepares tomorrow's professionals through the Forensic Institute for Research and Education, or FIRE. The Forensic Anthropology Search and Recovery Team assists law enforcement with skeletal remains at crime scenes. Legendary forensic scientists provide lectures free to the public, and high school students work realistic crime scenes each summer at our CSI MTSU camp. I'm Dr. Hugh Berryman, Director of FIRE. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. The Middle East-centered MTSU seeks to promote greater understanding of the politics, history, and culture of this vitally important region of the world. Its mission includes the promotion of outreach programs and faculty research. The center sponsors lectures by Middle East experts and scholarly exchanges. We're especially pleased to offer a new interdisciplinary minor in Middle East studies with courses in Arabic and Hebrew. This is Dr. Alan Hibbard, Center Director. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. 
The book is called The Kinks, Songs of the Semi-Detached by Dr. Mark Doyle, a professor of history. He's our guest today. You mention in the book several thought-shaping Britons through whose lenses you view the kinks music. Let me try three of them here. This is either word association or compare and contrast. Pick your metaphor. (laughs) Charles Dickens, George Orwell, and Edmund Burke. Tell me what parallels you see there. First, let's start with Dickens. Um, I identify the songs of kind of 65 to 67 that Ray is writing um, as his Dickens period. There are many parallels, actually, the personalities and their ways of um, performing um, in terms of their art. I think, you know, Dickens in Victorian England was trying to kind of lift the curtain on some of the, uh, the bourgeois proprieties and self-congratulation of that era to just demonstrate the, the rot at the heart of the system and to try to reform it. And I think... Uh, Ray in that period um, in the mid 60s is kind of doing the same thing. He's looking at swinging London and reading the magazine profiles and hearing all the hype about how uh, London is this hip, uh, wonderful, sunshiny city. And he's uh, satirizing that, making fun of it and saying there's actually more uh, to the story and it's not always pretty. George Orwell. Orwell's been a huge influence on on Ray. He's talked about his parents not allowing him to watch the television series uh, 1984 and then going to read it and being really influenced by the kind of um, the nightmare world that Orwell constructs in 1984. Orwell was an English patriot. He believed strongly in this the, the decency and common sense of the English. And he believed that even in their prejudices and their class system and all the rest of it, the English were a fundamentally human and lovable kind of people. Or, even though Orwell was middle class, he, he believed he carried a strong belief in the virtues and potentially um, saving virtues of the working classes. As, as what might help England uh, or the world retain its humanity. And I think you'd see that in, uh, in, in, in Ray's songs, especially in Muswell Hillbillies, uh, the album of 1971, where he's really kind of expressing a certain paranoia and uh, anger at the modern world and the uh, technological um, surveillance society that he's living in, which is very Orwellian, but also expressing a certain amount of hope that the, uh, the working classes will retain their, their humanity amidst all the, the modernizing horrors of the modern world. And Edmund Burke. Edmund Burke um, was an 18th century uh, British member of parliament who um, was actually Irish, the member of the British parliament, who is today remembered as the founder of modern conservatism. So not an exactly uh, likely forefather of, of somebody like Ray Davies. But um, Burke had this uh, idea, a similar idea to Orwell, about the, uh, the fundamental decency of the English people, the, uh, the way that the English were allergic to anything that smacked of European uh, ideology, anything like the French Revolution, uh, you know, he famously opposes, because it is opposed to tradition, is trying to uh, rip up the old and replace it with untried, untested uh, theoretical approaches to the world, to standardize, to uh, regulate, to map everybody on a grid. And Burke says, well, that's not, you know, that's not English. That's fundamentally opposed to the way we've grown our own society organically over time um, as a result of trial and error um, with our king and our constitution and, and our, um, you know, by no means perfect, but, you know, kind of jury-rigged uh, political system. And I think that outlook, that 
way of looking at the world uh, is very much similar to the way Ray looks at the world. You know, the historians and others go back and forth about whether you can, where you can plot Ray Davies on the left-right spectrum. Is he a conservative? Is he a liberal, a liberal or a, you know, is he labor? Is he Tory? He doesn't fit any of those categories very well. Um, there are things that he says that sound very Tory. There are things that he says that sound very labor. But Burke, and you can kind of trace a through line ideologically from Burke up to Orwell and, and through Davies and others, that is um, essentially places faith in the sturdy, decent, uh, common sense of the English people to do what's right without being told what to do by bureaucrats and ideologues. And Sounds I think- Churchillian. To a certain extent, yeah. There is uh, a strain of Churchill probably in in Ray as well. I saw the Kings in the late 1970s uh, at the War Memorial Auditorium in Nashville, which is a a more intimate setting than the cavernous municipal auditorium where most of the rock bands played in the 70s in Nashville. To my delight, they performed one of my favorites, which is Celluloid Heroes, And the lyrics seem to confirm Ray's belief that all this striving for money and fame is a really empty pursuit. Everybody was standing up. There were no seats. It was the most egalitarian concert I ever attended. And I wonder if it was by design. Do you see any symbolism there? The egalitarianism, it might not have been deliberate on the part of the band, but I suspect part of the fans. Part of the reason the Kinks have such a, an appeal these days is because there's so much in their music that different kinds of people can attach themselves to. People can attach to the early guitar-heavy, kind of angry, riff-driven uh, songs. They can, they can you know, be drawn to the later, um, softer, gentler Village Green era uh, stuff, or there's, of course, you know, the more than a decade's worth of, of music from the 70s into the 90s. They just draw different kinds of fans for different reasons and people are attracted to different eras but they're attracted for specific reasons and I think one of those reasons is that they are kind of seen as champions of the little guy and one of the terms that is most often associated with them is you know underrated any Kinks fan will tell you that the band is underrated there's this kind of sense of coming together for the underdog and the the fans in my experience anyway would be pretty broad cross-section of rock fans who, who come to them for for many different reasons, but it's all kind of rooted in this this egalitarian ethos. The Kinks, Songs of the Semi-Detached, which applies not only to Ray Davies' house, but Ray himself, and maybe the band as a whole. Dr. Mark Doyle, professor of history, is the author and our guest. Thanks for being with us, Mark. Thanks for having me. We'll be right back. The Middle Tennessee State University Women's Studies Research Series features compelling monthly talks on gender-related topics by faculty and graduate students. The series offers a chance to learn about research and progress and to chat with faculty in an informal setting. All lectures are free and open to the public and are held on the MTSU campus. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. The Army ROTC College Program at MTSU prepares students mentally, physically, and emotionally to become leaders and promotes virtues of duty, honor, country. ROTC cadets are involved in all academic disciplines, athletics, and student organizations at MTSU. Full scholarships and tuition assistance are awarded based on merit. All cadets upon graduation will serve their country as second lieutenants either in the Army, Army Reserve, or Army National Guard. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Gina Fan has the middle moment. 
How can you learn a task when what you're supposed to observe isn't being done? Students in MTSU's multi-camera TV production courses ask that question when their live video projects scheduled this spring and summer, including Nashville Fashion Week, the Nashville Symphony, TSSAA basketball tournaments, and even a new game show series, blinked off their calendars with every new email. Professor Bob Gordon, Jr., who coordinates the live production facet of the Department of Media Arts Video and Film Production Program, found an answer. Bring in experts via teleconferencing to talk shop with students and have the students analyze and discuss the programs they watched. And be flexible. It's a great opportunity for our entire industry to have to think outside of the box that how can we do a network special without all of the pyro and the cranes and the steady cams, etc. And the industry has, has proven that they can produce compelling programming, I think in some ways far more compelling because it's just the performer, the camera, and the viewer. I hope that everybody can go back to doing things the way they used to, but I also hope that this other approach will also be used in tandem with that when the situation merits it. That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.